welcome to the Redeemer Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And our student ministries exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Our whole goal is to come alongside parents and helping their kids follow Jesus Christ. And so what you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached on our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30. And as you listen, I pray that you are encouraged and that you would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ as we behold Him in His glory. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. We've been in the book of Ephesians, or the letter to the Ephesians, and Paul kind of starts off, he's writing from prison to these uh, Jewish, but mainly Gentile, so that is non-Jewish, audience. And Paul blasts off, in the last three, four weeks, we've been looking at this song of grace that he just, he doesn't start with a, he has a little greeting, but he can't help himself, he just starts singing, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with all the spiritual blessings, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so the whole theme has been that those who have looked at Jesus by faith have been united to Christ in this spiritual union. And what that means is that all that Christ has, all the benefits all the grace, all the mercy, all the righteousness, everything that Christ has is now ours if you have trusted in Him. How is it that you could stand before a holy God and not be destroyed? It's because, Christian, that the righteousness of Christ given to you covers you. How come you could have hope in this life because the blessings and the assurance and the sealing of the Holy Spirit is now yours, right? The guarantee of our inheritance. The love of the Father to choose a people before the foundation of the world to adopt them, right? And now we are all heirs. We're, we're heirs to the inheritance that Daniel talked about two weeks ago, right? And he did a great job, right? He talked about people who leave a will. Who was there for that, that sermon, all right? And so when someone leaves a will, right, they plan to give all of their riches, all of their estate to someone, but in order for that will to be enacted, someone has to die, right? Right? And when that person dies, then there is a trustee or an ex I don't know what it's actually called, an ex not an executor. Something I think it's like that. Someone that executes the will. Executor. Executor. There you go. An executor. Thank you. Who who executes the will and makes sure the money goes where it needs to go. And that is just a beautiful picture of what God the Father has done. He planned. He had a will, right, to save a people. And he had this, these riches, this storehouse of riches to give to them. Salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation, redemption. All of these beautiful things. A new land, a new name, a new life. And in order for that, those riches to become yours... He sends his son. Rather, his son says, I will go and accomplish this will by dying. And he dies. And he rises again. And he's the Lord of lords. And then he sends the Holy Spirit, who is the executor, who then applies all those riches, who unites us to Christ. And all those riches become ours. You know, if me and Caitlin have been putting together a will, we've been planning this, that if in the case that we die... There is an executor, someone that we pick that, that applies the funds to Eden. And she would be a very 
very wealthy little girl if he died. Right? Well, God has done that. That's, that's the whole plan of salvation. That's verses 3 through 14. And then, right after this song of praise, this 168 Greek words, one long sentence, a run-on sentence, any grammar teacher would be so mad at Paul, but he breaks the rules of grammar in order to show the magnificence of God's love and mercy. And right after he praises, what does he do? He prays. It's something about that. Something that when you start to think and ponder upon the grace of God, then you can't help but just go to Him in prayer and to commune with Him. When you start to learn about our union with God, we want to commune with Him. And so let's look at our text this morning. This morning, gosh. This evening. This evening. It's morning somewhere, so. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. It's a bigger section here. And what we want to see, actually, I'll just start reading it, okay? For this reason, because I received a report, or I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love toward all the saints. So Paul is in prison, right? For him to receive a report from Ephesus, someone would have to take a ship or a boat to go and see him. And whoever's given him a report told them that the Ephesians church, that they not only know the gospel, but they believe in it. And we know that they believe in it because they're showing fruits of that belief, namely their faith and their love for one another. See, love for God and what he's done for us always, always shows itself in a love for one another, especially within the church, especially amongst each other. Do you love your neighbor that you're sitting next to? Do you love each other? Paul says, for this reason, I I heard this report. And what does he do in hearing of the love that they have for one another? Verse 16. I do not cease to make thanksgiving for you. To give thanks for you. He's filled with gratitude. Because he's seeing the effects of the gospel in them. And he's so filled with gratitude that he wants to express his love for them. So he tells them that he makes mention of them in his prayers often. Remembering you in my prayers. So Paul is praying for the people. Think about it. He's planted multiple church and churches. And yet he's praying for them by name. When a believer comes to understand the gospel and their union, the riches of God's grace, they can't help, but yes, they look vertical, but then they start to look horizontal. And they start to see the faces of the brothers and sisters that they have in Christ. And they don't only see their faces like you did today and tonight, and not only only does he greet them, but he loves them so much that he's praying for them. And that's a fruit. That is a fruit of salvation. That is a fruit of love. That students, believers, pray for one another. How many of you pray for one another? Maybe you've forgotten that you should do that, right? Paul is praying for them. He's not ceasing to make mention of them in his prayers. Now, the question and the main point of this text is not the point is is not that Paul is praying. <laughs> But it's what Paul is praying for. 
Okay? And so we have to ask that question, Paul. I'm glad that you're praying, but what exactly are you praying for these people? And think about it. Jesus, or, or Paul, is, is being inspired by the Holy Spirit writing these things. And so we could say, in a sense, that Paul's prayer is really Jesus' prayer for the church and for you and I. And so what is Paul praying for? Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's an interesting phrase there, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember in the Old Testament, it used to be the God of Abraham, right? The God of Israel, the God of Jacob, but now it says the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, God in the New Testament is no longer identified with one nation, but with all the nations. All those who are in Christ Jesus, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's focusing on the humanity of Jesus there. The Father of glory, you're following along, you should have your Bibles open. He calls him the Father of glory. I'm praying that the Father of glory may give you the Spirit, Holy Spirit, of wisdom and of revelation. That is, uh, of knowledge an understanding in the knowledge of Him. So do you see that Paul, not only in verses 3 through 14, loves to talk about salvation when it comes to the Trinity, right? The Father plans salvation, the Son accomplishes salvation, verse 7, and the Holy Spirit applies salvation, verses 11 through 14. But here in his prayer, what does it say? The God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father, so you have Jesus, the Father of glory, may give you the Holy Spirit. We see the Trinity there. He's, he's praying that all of who God is would grant them revelation, wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of, uh, of Him. Look at verse 18. And how does this happen? How do we receive this wisdom by the Holy Spirit? By having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Hmm. That's an interesting phrase there. By having the eyes. So, so Paul's main concern is the main thing that he's praying for these people, these saints, is not necessarily for their marriages, though I'm sure that he did that, or for their holiness. I'm sure he did that. But he didn't write it down here. Or commands. He's not praying that for, for specific commands here that they are to do things. He's praying that they would know the triune God. Because in knowing God will then result in a life of holiness. Paul does not pray for holiness. He prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. Think about the word enlightened. It's like you walk into a a dark room and then I turn on the light. Boom, you can see. It's the blind now having sight. He's praying that the people in Ephesus would be able to see and know and understand who God is and what He has done for them. This prayer is not all... It's pretty familiar even in the Old Testament. In Psalm 119, the way that God, the Holy Spirit, enlightens our eyes to who God is, is through His Word. Psalm 19 says this, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. In Psalm 119, verse 18, it says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. When you go to pray to the Lord, typically we're always praying about needs that we have. Things that are pressing upon our souls, right? 
which isn't wrong. I'm not docking you for that. But how much of us are praying that you would know and understand God and who he is and what he's done for you? That is the foundation of what it means to be a Christian. In fact, Paul's prayer is just echoing Jesus' prayer in John 17. When Jesus prays for us, what is he praying for? John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, God the Father, the only true God, and that they know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you know that that Jesus, as your great high priest, is praying for you? And you know what he's praying for? for, Read John 17. You'll know exactly what he's praying for. But one of the things he's praying for is that you would know him. That your minds would be engaged in understanding God. And why does Paul pray this? Because many of them, many of these people have been saved out of the occult. They they were polytheists. They worshiped multiple gods. In fact, in Acts 19, I was going to read it, but I don't have time for you. There's a great scene when Paul is in, in Ephesus. And these, Jewish guys, these, these Jews are going around and they're trying to cast out a demon. These, these sons of Sceva is what they're called. These sons of Sceva, the, great high, the high priest, come around and they try to cast this evil spirit out of this man. And the evil spirit responds to them and says, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And the evil spirit, think about it, this is in Ephesus. They're, they're dealing with demons and, and spiritual warfare. The demon leaves the man and comes upon all seven of the sons. And in a fit of rage, they strip themselves naked. And then they run out into the city. And it says that all of Ephesus heard and saw what happened. And they feared the Lord. And many of them believed, and what they did is they took their books of magic, 50,000 pieces worth of 50,000 pieces of shekels of silver, which is worth 50,000 days wages. This is like currently millions of dollars. And they go and they burn it. They burned all their books on the dark arts of, of magic and sorcery. And, 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 and they burned it all. And so when Paul is talking about the eyes of their hearts being enlightened, that they may know God, you have to understand that the context that they come out of, that they were saved out of a very demonic religion. Very demonic cultish things that were happening around them. They were in darkness. They were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And one of his deep concerns, and one of my deep concerns for you here, is that the eyes of your hearts have not been opened to who Jesus is. You're still in the dark. You're still in the dark, yeah? You come close to the light, but you're not in the light. You're not a child of the light. Have your eyes of your heart been enlightened? And this is the goal of the Christian life, that you may know God. To have a deep Christianity, not versus a shallow Christianity, right? Don't be content with kiddie pool Christianity. Right? That's, that's what Paul's praying for. I want you, he's, he's like, I want you to jump into the depths of knowing God, into the vast ocean of wisdom and knowledge that you can explore. And if your eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit, you have in your hands this word of God that God has revealed himself to you, that you may dive deeply into knowing who God is. Now, The question is, 
then, for the rest of the sermon, what does Paul mean by knowing God? How can you know God? How can you go deeper or dive deeper into the deep end, right? That's what you want. I'm pretty sure that's why you're here. So you're like, JT, please tell me how it is that we're going to go deeper. And Paul tells them, he doesn't just tell them that I want you to know God, have your, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, but he wants you to know specific things about God. And there's three things that Paul gives to us um, that will help us know God at a deeper level. And so the first thing is that we know God by diving deeper into the blessings of the gospel, into the blessings of the gospel. I say this all the time, but many of you think that when you come to Jesus Christ, he saves you, and then you move on the Christian life, past the fundamentals, past Jesus Christ and who he is, on to your own spiritual disciplines, which are important. But it's like you're like, I'm saved by grace, I'm, I'm in by grace, I jump-started my car, I'm alive now, and now I don't need Jesus. I'm just going to keep on going. And sometimes we live our life like that. But the way that God has set it up is that we know God by diving deeper into the gospel because in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is where we see the attributes of God and who God is fully displayed for us. And Paul uh, is praying specifically that they would do that, that they would go into the blessings of the gospel more. And look... Look at verse 18. What are these blessings? He's praying for, he says, I want you to have the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope of the gospel. What is the hope of, to which he has called you? What is the riches of the gospel, of the glorious inheritance of the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in the gospel towards us who believe according to the workings of his great might? And so, how do we go deeper into the gospel? By first looking to the hope of the gospel. He says that you, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Hope. What is hope? A lot of people, when we use it in a sentence, you're like, man, I hope the Packers win this week. Right? I hope the Bears win. I hope that I get this job. I hope that I get a good grade. I hope that that girl texts me back. I hope that guy doesn't text me back. Um, I, <laughs> I hope he never texts me again. Um, you know, I, I, that's how we use the word hope. It's kind of like wishful thinking, right? It's not sure. We, we don't know what's going to I hope we go on that vacation, but I'm not sure it's going to happen, right? But whenever you come across the word hope, it's actually tied to faith. And Daniel mentioned this two, two weeks ago, that when you trust in the gospel, you're given hope. And hope isn't wishful thinking. It's an assurance or a confidence that what you have in Christ and what he's promised in the future will be yours. That's hope. And you know where we see this contrast of hopelessness in the world and the hope that Christians have? Is if you've ever been to a funeral, and especially a funeral of a Christian who has gone to be with the Lord. I know today, and many of you don't know this, but uh, Pastor John's mom passed away today, un kind of unexpectedly. And praise God that she was a believer, firm in the faith. And so the first thing that Pastor John says, my mom went to be in the loving arms of Jesus today. What a comfort! But I've been to funerals 
Where, and I, my first funeral that I did was of a man who was not a Christian who committed suicide. Now imagine preaching the gospel to that crowd. Because every single, the eulogy, you know, people come and they talk about their lives. And these lives are precious in the eyes of God. They're made, they have value and dignity. But to sit there and to hear people say that this man is in heaven, I'm just in tears because it's not true. That's false hope right? Or some, I've been to funerals where they just, all they talk about is the earthly things that the person did. And it's sad because they didn't know their Lord and Savior. And they're in hell forever and ever. But as Christians, I go to a funeral and there's tears, but there is joy. And some of them are celebratory. There's clapping, there's laughter, there's smiling. I've been to it. John Martin, one of our elders, John Martin's dad, it was beautiful. He served the Lord faithfully for years. And I was so encouraged. I was like, I want to be a pastor like that. 50 plus years, loving my wife all the way to the end, never committing adultery, never failing in that way, but being faithful to the end. See, there's a hope that us Christians have because there's an inheritance that we have, the riches of the inheritance, right, that he goes on. So not only this hope of the gospel, but the riches of the gospel that we have, and we know that we have because we've been given the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.14. And so you want to see the hope of Christianity versus the hopelessness of the world go to a funeral. You know, all of you are going to go to funerals someday. Some of people very close to you. I almost went to one a few weeks ago in Utah. My uncle almost died. Praise God that he knows the Lord. He had hope. But all of his family members, they didn't. And they were very fearful. We in Christ, Paul wants them to know that if you're persecuted, right? They're, they're being persecuted. That you have a hope to which you've been called for. A living hope. And who's the object of their hope? Jesus Christ. And who's the object of their riches, of the inheritance? Not just the new heavens not and earth, right? But it's God. He is our inheritance, that we get Him. And what's the third thing that he says in verse 19? He says, and I want you to know the immeasurable or super abundant magnitude of His power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. And so in Christ Jesus, we have the power of the gospel. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. We have a power not only towards us, but in us. You have the Holy Spirit within you if you're a Christian. You have the God of the universe, the creator and crafter of the universe, the God of wisdom, the God of comfort, the Lord, the Holy Spirit within you. Great power. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that will raise us from the dead. This is what Paul is saying. I want you to know that. To go deeper into the good news of Jesus Christ. And it is good news. And then the second thing he prays for. I want you to know God by going deeper into the gospel. And I want you to know God by going deeper into Jesus, into the Son of God. I want you to know the Son of God. And that's verses 19 or verses 20 through 21. See, the hope, riches, and power of the gospel cannot be known apart from Christ, right? 
I read this book, it's called Deeper by Dane Ortland, And he says, it's about real change for real sinners. And the whole premise of the book, it says that we, we, we grow in Christ the deeper we go into him by faith. The deeper we study him, we come to know him and experience him in our life. And he has multiple chapters on that. And one of the main ones is about union with Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is after. But he wants them to know specifically about the power of Christ. So you've got to understand something about Jesus. He says this, For if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you want to know God the Father, behold Jesus Christ. For we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. He is the radiance of God the Father. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. And so to know the Christ is to know God. So who is Jesus? Look at verse, 9, or verse 20. So he said, I'll start in verse 19. I want you to know, he says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the rich working of his great might that he worked in Christ that he worked in the Messiah when you see Christ think of Messiah when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come so Who is Jesus? The first thing that we see that Paul says, he says that he worked in the Messiah. So he gives Jesus the title Messiah. What is, who is the Messiah? What is that concept? Anyone know? Kind of has to do with the, the Old Testament, right? So in the Old Testament, there was this promise snake crusher that was going to come. I have this book for Eden that we read, and it's about the snake crusher. It's pretty cool. And she knows, she can understand nothing of it, but it's awesome because she loves the pages because they're so beautiful. When Adam and Eve fell, God cursed the snake, and he told the snake, from the woman's offspring, one will come that will crush your head. And so the Messiah was the snake crusher, this champion, this, this savior who's going to come from Eve, He's going to also come from the offspring of Abraham, who's going to be a blessing to the, to the nations. As the Old Testament goes on, this Messiah was going to be a greater prophet like Moses. And as it goes on, he's going to be a greater priest like Caleb. He's going to be a greater king like David. And so here comes the return of the king. He's the promised savior. That's who this Christ is. That's who Jesus is. He is the promised one. He is the suffering servant who was raised from the dead. Why did he have to die? Because he is the Lamb of God who was slain to take away the sins of the world, right? So Jesus, he's the promised Messiah, the one the Old Testament points to, who dies on the cross for sinners. But then, Paul doesn't just emphasize Jesus' death. We like to emphasize Jesus' death in evangelicalism. So in the modern church today, we like to emphasize Jesus' death, his humiliation, his sorrows, at the expense of Christ's exaltation. We like Jesus the lamb, the cuddly lamb, right? But we forget that Jesus is also the lion, right? And so when I picture Jesus, yes, I picture the lamb, right, who's so kind and sweet with sinners, who gave his life for sinners, 
But then I also picture the scene in The Lion King when Simba is returning and he's running across the wilderness. Remember that scene? And the music is going and you're like, yes, he's coming back to defeat the enemy, right? You're like, yes! And and that's Christ, right? In, In a sense, he comes not only to die, but to have victory over sin and death. And that's exactly where Paul wants to express to these believers, is he wants to emphasize the great power and might of Christ, the great lordship of Christ. Look at verse 20, that he rose from the dead and he is seated at the right hand and he's above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that can be named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. There's three things that Paul emphasizes here that he wants them to know. He wants them to know that their king, that their God is the risen king. He defeated death for them. And that he is seated. What does it mean for Jesus to be seated at the right hand of God? Why does he sit? Right? The same way, the same reason why my wife, at the end of the day, a long day, tired of caring for Eden and me, longs to sit at the end of the day. Her work is finished, right? And so after all of her work, she sits. Well, in the same way, Jesus, he comes, he lives, he dies, he raises from the dead, and then he sits. He sits on the throne. His reign is in session, right? He is now ruling currently and putting all things under his feet. And Paul uses uh, an illustration from Psalm 110, a kingly, uh, it's a song about the king. And it says this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make my enemies your footstool. And so Jesus is currently reigning as the victorious king. And he's dominant over all power, over all rule, over all authorities. And why does it say, and above every name that is named? That's weird. There's a reason for that. So in the occult that the Ephesian church was saved out of, one of the things that Romans would do is that they would not let the enemy know of the name of the gods that they're serving. Because if the enemy finds out about the name of the gods, it means that they have power over their gods. To have a name over the... It's like, it's like when someone says, yo, like on the basketball court, I have your number, bro. Like I, I'm putting you down, I'm locking you down, right? I shoot a three. And it's like, I, I, got, I got you. I'm over you. I'm better than you. You know, smack talk. I don't understand it all the time, but I've heard that phrase before. You know, he has your number. He's got you, right? Well, in the same way, so, so these Ephesians, they're like, okay, for someone to name or be over the name of a God is to have power over them. And what does Paul say he wants them to know? That Jesus has far more dominion, rule and authority and power than any demon God that you've ever worshipped. And he is above every name, not only in this age, but in the one to come. That would have been a sweet comfort to you. And I don't know about you, but the the world that we live in is pretty dark. I mean, we have people in, in, in governments that are advocating for the slaughter of babies. In fact, Gavin Newsom governor of california justified it by putting a bible verse saying to love your neighbor under the under the under the sign that was advocating for abortion using scripture to support 
slaughtering babies. That's how wicked our nation is. The things that people are advocating for, they make me sick. Sometimes I wonder, God, are you really in control? Do you really have this? Are we really going to win? It doesn't seem like it. My life is, you know, some of you, you have an eating disorder. You have ongoing sin, pornography addictions, deep sins. Is God really in control? Do I really have power? Is the Holy Spirit really in me? It doesn't seem like that. There's just loss and suffering around me. Paul wants them to know, to this persecuting church, this persecuted church, no, 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 the God that you serve is above it all. He has all authority and all power. Not only just power in this life, but power in the next. The power to raise, be raised from the dead. <laughs> to give new life, to turn evil into good, right? So much power that all the believers in Ephesus burned all their books, their whole livelihood. And that's such a good picture that when you come to Christ, you don't just keep some of your sin, you burn it all. I'm getting rid of it all. They burned their livelihood. They went from riches to poverty in a minute when they, when they did that, which is why he emphasizes the riches that they have in Christ. That Christ is the victorious one. You know, Ephesians talks about spiritual warfare more than any other book in the Bible because they lived in a time of of demon activity and so do we. I've seen it. Demon activity is within... I mean, you've seen commercials for Scientology. Anyone seen those recently during Sunday footballs? Yeah, I've seen that. That's a demonic religion. Any religion outside of Christianity, what they are worshiping, the experiences that they have, is not from the Holy Spirit, but from demons. You understand that? We live in a spiritual warfare. I'm not trying to scare you. Because I'm actually trying to encourage you that Jesus Christ is over it all. He is over it all. Some of you probably have dabbled with the occult. You listen to demonic I know someone in this church who had demonic visions of murdering people. And it all started when he was working with a few people who would play satanic music. He started having these visions, didn't know what to do about it. Praise God, who's the power of the gospel has purged that from him. It's so cool. But don't mess with it, like, it's real. It's real. But God is so much more powerful. And that person is, a, is there's a case in point that God is over it all. And so we know God by going deeper into who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah. He is the suffering servant. He is the risen king. All of this. And then lastly, we go deeper into knowing who Jesus is by going deeper into the church. Not just going to church, but I mean in fellowship with the church. Let's finish this off. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you want to know how to grow in Jesus Christ? He's given you the church. What is so special about the church? Well, one, Jesus is the head of the church, so if you've been united to the head, it is an oxymoron to say, I don't, need, I'm, I don't believe in membership. There's some people in our church that do this. 
They, they, they believe out of, I think, naivety that they don't need to become a member of the church, of the body. But Paul's argument here is that if you're a member of Christ, you've been united to his head. He is the head. But it's also you're united to his body. The church is his body. So how can you be united to the head but not the body, which is the church? Does that make sense? How is it that you can do Christianity in a bubble? That's not how it works. He calls the church his body. And he's put all things under Christ's feet. And we see Christ's reign and victory and dominion now through the church. How so? How so? How does the church help us know God? Six things. Six things. At church, we get to see Christ's body by fellowshipping with one another. And so when you're talking with one another, right, you're encouraged by one another. Hey, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? Hey, this is what I learned about God this week. Right? This is what he's teaching me. So at church, we get to see Christ's body in one another. Second, at church, we get to hear of Christ's person and work through the preaching of the gospel. Right? So every Sunday, you get to come and you get to hear of who Jesus is. You get to go deeper in knowing who God is. Three, at church, we get to sing about the hope and riches and power of the gospel. Right? So not only do we get to see the body of Christ hear the body of Christ through preaching, sing about the riches of the gospel. For at church we get to pray like Paul to our God that we may know him. So we get to see, hear, sing, pray. At church we get to taste and see the gospel through baptism in the Lord's Supper. You get to taste the gospel by taking a meal. It's called the Lord's Supper where you're reminded of what Jesus has done for you, that his body was crushed for you, and his, his blood was poured out for you, and that he is the risen king, and that ever since that day in the Passover, 2,000 years ago, Christians on every single Sunday have been taking the Lord's Supper, and you get to take part in that. You get to be encouraged in that. At church, lastly, we get to, <coughs> we get to rest in what Jesus did for us. See, it's not just coming and being a consumer. You can't do the Christian life without the church. God has given it to you to help you know Him, to help you see Him, to help you be convicted by the preaching of the Word, to be reminded of the gospel, of who you are in baptism, in the Lord's Supper. And what's the purpose of knowing God? What is the result of knowing God? How, how is it that you can know that I'm a Christian? That the gospel is making its work in my life? Go back to verse 15 with me. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love. Knowing God produces a love for people. It produces a heart. I do not cease to give thanks. A heart of gratitude that wants to obey God, not to earn his love but because you are loved. And it produces in us a spirit of prayer for one another. So, do you know God? That's my prayer for you. And there, this is just jam-packed with so much things here, so many good truths. But the main point is this, that the core of the Christian life is that you would know God and worship Him and enjoy Him forever. And so don't settle for kiddie pool Christianity.
Go deep in life groups. Stop giving the shallow answers. Wake up early. Get in the Word. You don't know how to read the Word? Ask your friend. Hey, can you help me do this? Ask your leader. Start making a prayer list of people in your life group. Pray for them by name, as Paul does. Get some good books. We have free resources out there. Gentle and Lowly. You want to know who Jesus is? Go get that book. It's free. It's out there. Start reading. Start learning. Know God so that you may worship Him, love Him, and then express that love to the saints, to one another. 